Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Nick Travers from Techne, a 33-person architecture and interiors practice based in Melbourne, Australia. In this episode, Nick and I discussed his insight into the approach and motivations of large-scale hospitality clients, from their attitude to risk-taking, their drive to find a unique point of difference for their venue, and how the studio manages healthy client relationships over the long term. We also looked at how the studio has made a strategic choice to avoid being pigeonholed in a particular style or project type in order to make their business model more sustainable over the long term, relevant to long-term clients and able to weather changes in the economy. We also looked at the power of repeat business, how it drives 60% or more of their new projects each year and the benefits that come along with that, as well as some of the risks and limitations repeat business can bring for studios as their offerings and pricing models evolve over time. And finally, we discussed how the directors have developed their business acumen over the years, from early mentors to engaging consultants and executive coaches. We also spoke about the studio's plans for the future, including a fast-growing new office they've launched in Northeast Victoria. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nick Travers from Techne. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So be great to start off with a little bit of a, a big historical overview of Technate. Yeah, no worries. We started in 2000, 2001. Uh, officially, it's, it's 2001, but there's that transition when you move from employment into running your own business. So there's that little bit of a gray, that gray period when you're moving from one thing to the next. So it's 20 plus years now. I've had my original business partner from the beginning, Justin Northrop. We both worked in a large Melbourne practice. And at that time as well, we were pretty new graduates. We were only three years out from uni at the stage that we jumped ship and started our own business. It happened for us in a fairly natural way in that weekend work and I guess you call it moonlighting or private jobs eventually took over. I think the thing that was a little bit unique for us was we were particularly young and uh, that had its benefits. It also had its disadvantages. Uh, but the other thing that was a catalyst for us to do our own architecture business is that we started our own bar and restaurant in 2001. So we, 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 had, pri- we had clients uh, who we were just delivering architectural services to, little jobs, all sorts of things, houses, little commercial projects and pub, pub fit outs. But then we had our own bar and restaurant that we were developing with a group of shareholders and investors. And we were mostly putting in sweat equity because we we came up with the business plan. We found the site. We got the lease. We pulled the team together. But we were young architects with we didn't have two cents to rub together. So we got our equity in the business through packaging it all up and putting the team together and doing the design, doing the documentation, making it happen, finding the investors. And then we took it from there. The business was called The Deanery. It doesn't exist anymore, but it did operate for a long time. And we had a bunch of shareholders it was like investing in a, like having a slice of Melbourne, a Melbourne bar at that time, like a laneway bar. Yeah. It was a wine bar and restaurant. It also had cellaring facilities. So you could, yeah, people chipped in 50 grand each and it was um, husband and wife and two mates. So there were, there were different so little groups of people that um, invested. So 
it wasn't a high yield proposition. No one was going to get rich off it, but no one as well was going to lose their shirt. And it just sat and you had that cachet of saying, oh, yeah, this is my place. This is my yeah. my bar in the city. And and for Justin and I, it was it was really a vehicle. It was a project for us to do, like a, to, to set us on our way. And, and that project put us in the hospitality space in Melbourne. It was uh, it was successful enough at the time. We garnered coverage and we got a reputation and then it just put us in the hospitality sphere. Our landlord at the time was one of the key investors of the Movida restaurant. So we were, we were then part of the Movida group and uh, we, we were there at the beginning and helped them develop that business and create the restaurant on Hosea Lane, which yeah. became a real thing and it's still it's still there today. So that was our our Genesis story. We then at that time as well we we sublet off six degrees architects and that as well was a, a, a really great synergy. They had a great reputation in hospitality design as well and they had opened the Myers Place bar in the mid nineties and they're a great company and a great group of people and um, and being new graduates at the time, we were didn't quite have the confidence to be totally on our own. So we we kind of had uh, we enjoyed the benefit of being in a space with them, and they had twenty people or so in a West Melbourne studio called Public Office. We picked up some cultural practice of theirs, and we didn't exactly work together per se, but it was just it just was sort of comforting to have some other architects in the room, and uh, we used their trade literature library and their samples and. We you yeah. know, ate lunch together and uh, it was good. And so we did that for a couple of years. And um, so that was quite early on. And then eventually we outgrew that space with them and we moved to Hardware Lane in the city. And we had a couple of studios there. And I, I guess in lots of ways, the Techno has just been an incremental organic growth from that early start of a couple of business partners and adding one or two people a year on average. And we get to 2023 and there's uh, 30, 33 of us and mm. uh, we're half architects and half interior designers. We work on a range of jobs, still do a lot of hospitality work. Ha- at least half of our work is hospitality based and the other yeah. half is a mixture of houses and apartments and various commercial buildings and the odd dealership here and there. Um, yeah. And uh, and that's sort of stood us in good stead. And uh, we've got a, you know, it's a fairly sizable team and we've got a, got a leadership structure and... Um, yeah, we're we're fairly established at this point. So, and a lot's happened in between. So, yeah, no, it's a lot of it's a lot of history. Um, going back to that initial project, it's really interesting. So, in terms of what that led to in hospitality, was it mostly repeat business with this Movita Development Group and and continuing to then work on more projects together with your partners, or was it more that people were coming in the door going, "Oh my god, this place is great. Who is your architect?" And you're going, "Well, it happens to be us." Let's work on your project. Was what was it a bit of both? I'm guessing it was a bit of both. Like it, it, it had attention at the time, just as a job in and of itself. But it had this connection with the landlord, who was a was a restaurateur himself, and we worked on jobs of his, like Movida. And then you just we just developed in that a name. We yeah. there was re- just that normal thing with referrals, and we were just working in that space and picking up different jobs and doing restaurants yeah. and cafes and bars and and pubs. So, and the pub side of things is what really accelerated in the in the intervening years. So, one of our very early jobs was a pub as well, and the pub is actually where Movita started. It was tested in a pub space first. The landlord actually of the deanery, he owned a pub in West Melbourne called the Karen, and uh, when he took it over, I think there was a Chinese restaurant embedded in the pub. But then at some point he discovered Frank Camora and then they decided to put him in the kitchen and then they developed the business of Movida and established that it was a it was a good thing. And then uh, and then they found the Hosea Lane tenancy yep. and put him in a permanent home and we were around at that period of time. So pubs in general, all these hospitality venues, the scale that they're being developed at in Melbourne is just like mind boggling, right? The, yeah, the, it's the, drastically the, different. The budget, the budgets involved, and yeah, yeah. Could you speak to that a little bit? The market uh, grew, but there's there's just that thing with the evolution of things. There's always been a food and beverage culture to Melbourne. It's not like it's only happened in the last twenty five years, but there was certainly a renaissance or a change in 
in hospitality when Crown opened in the 90s and the liquor licensing laws mm. in Melbourne changed to the extent where little bars without offering food could could exist mm. and long, long uh, operating hours. So you'd have little cocktail bars down lanes in the city of Melbourne opening till 3am and or 5am. Yeah. That, that didn't exist before. The, the liquor licensing laws didn't allow it. So that sort of changed the dynamic in Melbourne. And then there was obviously a... Um, a strategic position of Mel- Melbourne looking to turn it into a 24-7 city and getting people living in, in the city and making it a vibrant, safe and energetic place. And so food and food and beverage obviously dovetail in, in with that. And, um, and as food and beverage offers um, continue to expand and evolve, every venue has to find its, its new point of difference and differentiating factor. And I guess when operators and designers do one project, it sort of resets the bar and, you know, the ambitions that incrementally get higher and higher because everyone's always aspiring to do something a bit better than what they did last time. And so it's yeah. constantly evolving. And then the, yeah, the, the bar just gets, gets, you know, rises. And so what you're doing and getting away with 25 years ago is vastly different to what you do now and they're big professional projects with big teams of consultants and you know good proper kitchens lighting designers architects graphic designers branding people the cutlery and the flatware and you know everything gets considered now the music even the uh the smells of the place i guess yeah that gets thought about in some of our projects and yeah, it's just more more complex, more considered, more sophisticated, and uh, and obviously the market condition is constantly evolving, which has to be met. And yeah, and you can sort of see different things happening now. I had someone describe to me that they thought the and it, it seems obvious now. It was said to me. It was only last week. They they said it's the end of the celebrity chef. Like it's mm. that era has passed. That's not what's going to drive hospitality brands and ventures going forward it's more the big groups doing big venues big multifaceted venues and it's not they're not driven by a shit like there's going to be good chefs in them but it's not not like what yeah. we'd experienced in the last decade yeah yeah i could i could see that i could definitely see that mm. there's like when some when we talk about something opening now or a new place it's kind of like oh they're the people that did that other place yeah you know there's always that sense of what's the kind of pedigree behind this new venue yes. it doesn't seem to be oh who's in the kitchen you know who's the chef who's who's whoever yeah that's demi- I, I, I it seems to like be diminishing yeah yeah diminishing a bit yeah yeah so so yeah i just think the complexity has risen and just the scale part of it's like for us is we started in the in in the profession and the industry doing small jobs and you know that sort of fits with where we're at with our experience and People are only when you're only 27 or something and you haven't done much. People aren't going to risk millions of dollars on you necessarily, unless yeah. you're a, an incredible talent. Um, but you know, you just do little jobs and then you incrementally they rise. But you know, we started out doing jobs that might involve a $200,000 fit out or a three, you know, hundreds of thousands. And now the jobs that we do in hospitality go up to about 30 million. So, um, mm. and a lot of the jobs might be 10, 15. 12 you know those kind of you know multi-million dollar projects and they involve architecture and interior design so yeah if we're talking a million dollar project or a 30 million dollar project in hospitality are you still facing similar kind of pressures in terms of timelines to open and you know is it still kind of quite tough to work on those projects or do you find that as you guys get bigger and work with more experienced clients and work on these more like um, prestige hospitality projects Mm. that do things start to relax a little bit? <laughs> yeah. um, I think that there's always pressure and it's part of what's good about the hospitality sector because we enjoy the commercial imperative of things. Like it's good to be moving and to actually getting it done and not to be mucking around and being stuck in. Because when you're working with those bigger jobs and you're working with experienced operators, they, they'll take commercial risks as well. They mightn't actually have a planning permit in place, but they're willing to risk that they're going to get a permit and they're best actually to keep the professional team working in the background and taking it's their managed risks, but they're not just sitting there waiting for a permit to be approved to then go to the next phase. They've got to, they've got to keep moving. So yeah, we, yeah. we, we enjoy that because it just, we're motivated to get things done. Uh, we don't have enough time to get bored with things and we're not overthinking concepts and working them forever and ever and ever. You know, you, you make decisions, you decide what you're going to do and you, 
you, you do them. So there's always that commercial imperative. You know, they've either bought a property and they want to activate it or there's, an, there's a lease, there's rental to be paid coming up and they've got a certain amount of rent-free period. So they want to, you know, and then they obviously just yeah. want to start making a business that's turning over and uh, and and functioning. So, um, so that always exists. But when you work with these experienced clients and ones that we've worked with for a long time, there is... I guess it's it's not relaxed, but everyone knows what we're up for. They're not second guessing what team they need. Uh, they're not second guessing whether we should employ a certain expert because they're looking to save save the money. It's like no, no, we need a, acoustic consultants. We need liquor licensing. We need lighting design. We need all these different things, and they know what it costs and they've budgeted for it, and it's it's just part of the ingredients. So we and we're not having to educate these clients about how to go about it. We're you know they've been through it before, yeah. so yeah. So that so that's where it gets a bit more relaxed because we're not having to convince everyone all the time. The other thing too is, I guess, when you've got these more established operators, they're coming to the table as well with their own vision and their own ideas, which helps us. We're not working in a vacuum, or you're not just being told by a client, oh, "I've I've just leased this space, and how, how do we make this fabulous?" Or you know, what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah. you know, they're coming to the table with ideas. They've got a sense of what what, what the market wants and what know. the offer is. And they've, they're, bring, they're, they're a collaborator and being creative in the process as well. It's not just us doing all yeah. that lifting. And, and if they're at a certain scale, would they maybe have their own sort of in-house kind of architect or designer or creative director or something like that sometimes? They, we haven't come across hospitality. For, it may be, maybe it exists. We haven't come across that thing where it's a vertically integrated like development yeah. company where they got architects in house and they try and like keep it all under the one umbrella and but mm. they so they don't have architects in house maybe maybe some do but not none that we've dealt with but they do yeah, have cool. a director who is defined as the creative director and we work with them and and the other business partners have got other expertise one's one's marketing one's accounts one's operations yeah. and then the other and then they yeah they all come together and have shared decision making but someone's there who's really engaging with us on the the interior design and the architecture and the conceptual positioning of whatever we're doing. So, yeah. When, when you're hearing about you talking about, you know, in your early twenties, having the deanery and being the cool kids that owned a, that owned a bar yeah, and just were living that life. I was sort of expecting that to be the point in the story where you abandon architecture and you just become a hospitality owner and developer yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah. Obviously stuck around in the architecture business. Yeah. I think it was always our motivation I sometimes wonder where we are now, like, and I know the answer we, why we didn't do more hospitality, but of your own projects, of our own projects, but yeah, we were just so focused on being architects and interior designers, and and that as a job is is a lot, and um, yeah, once and when you when you're focused on that, it doesn't really leave. Like, there's definitely architects out there who are entrepreneurial and doing different things and developing and got other sideline businesses. But we, we just found that we were just then busy building an architecture practice and we were happy with that. It's also some of it's just actually, like I said, when we had the deanery, we, we didn't have a big stake in it. We, we weren't ever going to get rich because we only had, in the end, we sort of had 10% ownership. So even if it was a super duper business, the dividends were never going to be like flowing and, uh, and we're also in the early phase of our career and building a business from scratch. And, you know, in the beginning, you're just actually trying to survive. Like it's a deal just to survive the first couple of years or to survive the first five years, let alone actually yeah. smashing it. So, yeah, we had a, you know, uh, a, slow, a slow build. We definitely took the first five years to get through and, and before sort of bigger things started happening for us. But, you know, we were coming off a very, very low base. Like we had we had some good success with the deanery and we had the client who owned Movita, but we were very junior architects with no real reputation, no, no networks. Like ju both Justin and I are not um, born and raised in Melbourne. So we didn't have family business connections or family money or those sorts of yeah. things to give us a leg up. We were come, I came from Adelaide, Justin came from Canberra, um, and we've mm. just done it through the work, which is fine. It's been a good experience. But the reason why we didn't do more of hospitality is we were just just busy trying to be architects and it was a, that was enough. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
From a business survival standpoint, was that first phase the most challenging or was it like the GFC or something? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. There's definitely, there's continual challenges. It's a very difficult business. It's a great, it's a great job and a great profession, but it is a tricky business. There's a lot mm. of at stake. There's a lot of risk. You could definitely do other things that would earn you more money, but it's a very interesting job. But certainly the beginning was hard. Both Justin and I were lucky. We had partners that supported us and, they had jobs and we were scratching our way through building an architecture business and trying to scrabble together some clients and fees and whatever. Um, and in the beginning too, you sort of, you also attract a few, like you're naive, you attract a few clients that are not the best clients because they're trying to get a cheap deal because you're a junior architect charging ch- cheaper fees and they're a bit not the best for you and not paying their bills and not paying you a lot to start with. So that that's challenging. But even through the life cycle of the business, we've gone through, I guess, a couple of challenging moments in the economy. Like when I think back to the GFC, it's sort of interesting. At that time, we were a 10-person office. But given the sort of work we were doing at the time, the GFC didn't didn't impact us a great deal. Uh, The Australian economy did different things at that time. Like we didn't have the meltdown like like the rest of the world. We didn't we yeah. didn't collapse like New York and collapse like London in a way. But the interesting thing for us was weirdly, we were just super duper busy on hospitality projects that that just there was the kind of the rise of the premium casual restaurant at that period. And we were doing a lot of stuff like with Grilled and Fonda and new businesses Delicious. like Jimmy Grant's. <laughs> Uh, we're also doing pubs they talk about when the economy is going bad people drink more beer so we were doing pubs and the other thing that really (laughs) jumped up for us is car dealerships we ended up doing multiple car dealerships at that time so um so our diversity in our project work helped us because we weren't stuck we weren't not stuck we weren't doing apartment buildings for example or single residents and maybe people were tightening their belts and not spending money on those things but People were still buying cars and um, big brands were developing dealerships and we were still doing restaurants and bars and we were doing pubs and we were busy we were busy enough. We didn't we didn't contract, but we were still just like a ten we were a ten person office. So working in a range of sectors, which a lot of, you know, most practices do, but it seems to really stand out that when the economy is a bit rougher that seems to be what gets a lot of practices through is that one side of the business will pick up and kind of take over the slack from the other side that might have dropped off, you know? Yeah. So that's, yeah. That's definitely been our experience and that's why we continue to try and keep diversity in our portfolio. We're clearly biased to hospitality, but we we we, we enjoy doing some commercial work and some resi and some other things. And after a while, you do start to settle yourself into the sort of work that really suits you and what you're interested in. In the beginning, you're not entirely sure and you're kind of open to doing anything. But, you know, we've dabbled over the years in a bit of health and a bit of education and some aged care and these sorts of things. But we don't especially have a passion for those things and they've they've just naturally fallen away and we're not likely yeah. to, you know, build a business into those spaces. But, we're you know, we are hospitality, so we, we own that. Um, uh, a natural evolution for us in hospitality and we're already doing it, but is to move into accommodation hotels. Um, hmm. It's a natural fit, and um, it sort of brings together our architecture side of our business and our and our interiors. And um, you know, we we just fo- we focus on what we know we're good at, and um, and be as diverse within that within those sectors as we possibly can. Yeah, it's funny. You guys are twenty years old, and you come on the podcast, or the, and you might as well be 150 years old from my perspective because right. I just don't meet that many studios that are that have been around even for that amount of time. So I'm so my questions are going to be like, you guys are you know <laughs> the <laughs> oldest practice in the world, um, but but to, so I think also one of these things that's interesting about this sort of time span that the studio has been around is that obviously you kind of have to sort of continue to stay current, right? Like you can't just have one sort of shtick or gimmick or whatever that can be popular for a couple of years as, mm. as some studios might. And then, you know, it goes out of fashion or becomes kind of uncool or irrelevant. And yeah. then that studio is not really like kind of cool or interesting or in demand anymore. And, and, yeah. but it's, you know, keeping a studio growing more popular, bigger projects, like on kind of leading in hospitality for a long period of time, mm. obviously there's, there's something there of keeping it, keeping it fresh, spicing it up. Yeah. 
I, I think Joss and I were um, very, very conscious of this the whole way through working. And I guess when we started, we were the young crew coming in with fresh ideas and we were conscious of yeah, maintaining that sort of freshness if we possibly could. And some of that is about our style of management and leadership is not too top down. Justin yeah. and I and, and our other direct co-director, Steve, need to be clear in what we want to do, but we also deliberately create as much space as we possibly can for our team to be part of the creative process. So there's definitely practices out there that it's all driven absolutely from the top and the team yeah. delivers on the principal or the owners or the founders' visions. But we, we've taken a bit of a different tact um, because we see the benefit in collaboration. Uh, we also see the benefit in allowing others to have a creative stake in the game. And it also has a benefit, especially in the hospitality space, um, of, of being connected with the current sort of zeitgeist or the interest of a young the younger generation because you know but justin's in his early 50s i'm about to turn 50 you know steve's of a similar age where we've we've got kids we're at height we've families we're, we're not going out like we used to we're not you know we still are but but not to the same extent so we don't we're a bit out of we can personally we can be a bit out of sync with what with really where yeah. things are at so we then rely on our team who are out and about and doing different things and help helping us sort of inject that youthfulness and and fresh ideas into the mix and we're also very aware of use by dates and and relevancy and like staying uh yeah having a long period in the in in the field and not not just a, a short periods. When we were having a chat a few weeks ago, we were talking a little bit about this idea of studios having a style or a sort of signature uh, or whatever, and it mm. always comes up on the podcast. I'm a bit obsessed with this topic, I'll admit. But um, yeah, you you had a really interesting angle on it, sort of like in terms of longevity, having a particular style can be a little bit dangerous, a little bit risky. It's something that you guys are kind of conscious about. Is that Could you just speak to that a little bit more just in terms of your yeah. kind of point of view on on that as a studio? Yeah, sure. Oh, well, I sort of alluded to it just in those last statements for sure. But when we're doing hospitality projects or retail projects or a lot of things in the commercial sphere, we're dealing with clients with their own brands, their own business models, and we're being responsive to those. It's just demanded in the in that space that we see that we have to maneuver, we have to we have to offer new things to our clients, whether they're repeat clients or new clients. We're we're always conscious of coming up with a point of differentiation, mm. and um, you can certainly see other practices delivering on a on a particular way of going about projects, and there 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 is definitely a risk in. Uh, and they're definitely evolving and they're not they're not exactly rubber stamping yeah. or cookie cutting but there can be that sense to them and we've certainly won jobs in the past because clients have specifically said we liked working with our previous architect but after we did five projects or four projects we felt like we were getting the same job and they just had yeah. one speed they had one way and they just it's like we did some great jobs but we just can't we can't really see our way forward with them because it's we know what we're going to get and it's not what we're interested in anymore. So I've definitely won jobs because we've said we do different things. I'll never do the same project for you. We'll always do different things. And that's where with an individual client with multiple projects, we can do all of their project work for a decade or for 20 years. Like our Sandhill Road clients, we've been, I can't quite remember when we started with them, but it's at least, it's probably 15 years now. Mm. And we've done 20 plus projects with that yeah. group and it's only because we treat each job as a new job and they, they want to do different things and it's it's yeah. just part of the gig. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, we and then we work just with so many different brands and whether it's corporate brands like a car, like Porsche or another car, a car brand or just other hospitality operators or retailers, it's just there's a different angle and a different story, a different narrative, different design pillars that we're, we're approaching with our jobs. So... We certainly have yeah. a backbone to what we do and there's things that motivate us about the work, but we apply, we just apply those things in different ways. So, You know, when we're talking about the kind of the consistency or, or, or whatever that some studios have, I usually think about it from the perspective of it, it might kind of make it easier to attract a client in the first place because 
you've got this kind of, you start building a reputation for a certain style of project. And if a yeah. client is looking for that particular style, it's like, well, this studio is best known for it. And you said, you know what you're going to get um, or you don't know what you're going to get from some studios. But yeah. I feel like that might be easier to get them in, but maybe the more um, unpredictable, more responsive approach might make attracting clients in the first place a little bit tougher, maybe. And you could probably like, I think dis- you're right. Dismiss or debunk that, yeah. but it makes keeping them for a long span of time probably easier, based on what you've just said. I think so. I think there there is a trick with some clients, especially maybe the more inexperienced ones, where they're looking in what's been published in the past, and they're saying, "I've got a certain job, and my vision is I, I can see that company A or Techne they've done a job like the one I want, so I want mm. I want them to do that." But if someone says, yeah, so we've we've had those difficulties where people haven't been willing to employ us because they just think, they see that we do, oh, we've done a lot of gritty urban projects. And they're like, oh, I can't really see that you guys have done a refined sort of luxe yeah. type project. And I'm yeah. not sure that that's really in your wheelhouse. And we're trying to say, well, no, 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 we've, we, we, can, we can do that too. But, you know, I can't point to a particular job that we've done in the past. But if that's what you want, that's your vision, um, that sits with your brand identity, like we can pivot to that. But that, that's, the, that's the difficult sell. They mightn't be willing to take that risk. Yeah. But I guess once you've had the chance to work with them and they've established the relationship and they appreciate the the, the wavelength that we're on and we're talking the same language and they can see that we're responsive to how they approach their projects or we approach their projects, then there's there's a long-term relationship that we can, professional relationship that we can foster and uh, roll from one project to the next project. But yeah, you're right. It can be a little bit trickier at the start, but we're all about establishing relationships with people and partnerships and collaborating with clients and treating them as part of the client team because there's just a huge business to benefit in not having to every time you come up with a new job to have to compete for it, tender for it, win it on fees, win it on experience, win it on creative ideas. It, you just you establish that with a client group and then they are comfortable with what you do and they I, most of the work that we do, I get a call from someone that we've already worked with and they just say, Nick, I've got a new site. Can you come down? Let's oh, let's yeah. start talking about... So good. Yeah. And we, we yeah. there's not much of a fee discussion. There's not much. We're just, we're just doing the job. So... Yeah. Uh, so awesome. So, so what sort of, um, what sort of percentage of your kind of billings in a year would be like a repeat business? I've actually just done a bit of analysis on that. Oh, there we go. For the first time ever. I haven't quite put all the data together, but the instance of a repeat client is a very, very high proportion of our work. And when we've got a repeat client situation, I established that there was an 80% success rate of doing the next job. And probably oh, wow. the twenty yeah. probably the 20% percent instance, like every now and again, maybe the client relationships soured because something happened. Uh, yeah. We don't live in a perfect world and we're not we aren't perfect. Um, we don't always smash it out of the park. Um, mistakes are made. and uh, But for the most part, we've got a lot of history of repeat clients and 80% of the time we re- we secure the repeat work. And maybe the, maybe other than a, a glitch in the relationship, sometimes the reason why the job, we didn't get the job was just they didn't do it. They they look they yeah. looked at it, but it just didn't actually happen. So no one, no one did it. So if it's not repeat business, then the other big, sector is uh, just referrals. I'm kind of guessing here, but I, I'd say that 60% of the work is repeat and 30, 30% is a referral basis. And then the other is a cold call or some sort of competitive yeah. uh, process, a really yeah. small, yeah. a very small proportion. So yeah. it's just the way it's gone for us. I think, well, it, w- it wouldn't be entirely unusual in the architecture profession for people really. It's a referral on a repeat basis. But it's going to vary, obviously, when you, if you were doing single res, it's going to be a lot of, a lot of referral base, I would say. Yeah. Because you're not, unless you've got a client who's building multiple houses. Maybe um, if you're in the game long enough, you'll get their second and third house. Yeah. But you're probably, yeah, except for yeah, an uber rich client. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like two or three projects. <laughs> it's not going to be 20. No. Like, and, and we do, <laughs> no. and we do have versions of clients where we've done 20 projects. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
but um but then i guess the referral thing and then so in single res it's going to be referrals and then award you know winning of awards and recognition yeah. for doing you know really refined and super super cool houses yeah. you're gonna you're gonna get yeah. jobs that way it's interesting so with the repeat business and kind of maintaining these really long-term relationships there's a couple of like little things that came to mind which would be a what happens when the people change in the company over time which i guess you know you're probably dealing with the owner so i guess it's not as big of an issue but i guess how yeah. do you maintain like a very tight relationship with a company where that's always going to be yeah. shifting and changing like who's there on the other end and the other, just the other thing is also you have such a shorthand with that client where they're like, okay, time to do another project. But mm. um, do you ever do you ever find that you know if you're in a situation where you guys are maybe like redesigning how you do your fees or you're increasing your rates or you're doing these sorts of things, like does it ever put you in a difficult position where you go, oh look, sorry, you know, like we know we did the last fifteen projects at this rate, yeah. but you know, we've got to bump it up. This this has got to happen. You know, do you ever have those? Yeah. Does that ever create kind of awkward conversations where you have to go from mate that's worked together a bunch of times to, yeah, all right, sorry, <laughs> got to have that business conversation. Yeah. Uh, look, I think you've just raised a couple of very astute um, questions there. Where there's upside, there's also downside. And certainly in that corporate space, like say you have relationships with senior people, CEOs or development managers or key decision makers and sometimes people in those seats in certain companies have really long tenures and you're going to have a almost a lot uh, a career's worth of connection with them but that's not that often it's more the case that relationships are going to change and I think personally what I've accepted is say with a big corporate you might have you can just accept that maybe you're going to have a good five-year run with that particular company with that particular relationship that you're having and you get some good projects done and and if the relationships change and you're not able to keep pace with them or reconnect with whoever comes through to the next uh, to, to be promoted or brought into the company so be it you don't have to lose sleep over it but I, I would say there's some instances where we we have let relationships fall aside because there's been new people come in we don't and we're, we're maybe not the best networkers on the planet so we, we probably don't do as much relationship building as as we we possibly should but but yeah you just don't lose favor you just relationships change and then new people come into the seat and they've got their own connections and they've got their own relationships and I can think of a couple of instances where that's happened with us and I, I'm just accepting of it I can appreciate why that's happened I don't know that person they don't know me they've got their own people that they like working with and I'm I'm good with that I can I don't feel feel bitter and yeah. twisted or beat myself up over the fact that we we're not continuing to do that work anymore and per, perhaps an example of that is is Porsche we had a, more than a decade worth of work that we did with them uh, lots and lots of projects they were great to work with and we're not doing so much with them now and it's only because of that passing of time the change of leadership and it's just a natural change in the relationship, which is fine. And, and in a yeah. way, like in that space, personally, I was uh, like, I've got an interest in cars. I love that brand. Um, but we did we did a whole lot of projects, uh, and, and I don't feel like we there's any there's necessarily much anywhere to grow professionally with that. We we did those jobs and we delivered them, and they were great. And uh, and we're now just doing different things, which are you know filling our time and keeping us busy, and and it's it's no drama. The other the other part of your question was about that having the discussion with clients about fees and um, and there certainly is that issue when you've got longer standing clients and also when you start with them and you you do very modest projects and you begin you be, begin on a kind of a low base it's a little job yeah. with a little fee. And then there's incremental growth or even exponential growth, but you constantly benchmark to the original position. And there's always that slight sort of issue from our side that we don't want to upset the apple cart and have the client um, bring in another party. You know, they go, you, you, you scare them with a new fee position. They go, oh, hang on a second. These guys are getting, I think they're getting a bit ahead of, they're not, it doesn't feel competitive anymore. And I yeah. think we should, and then they might think to themselves, we're second guessing this, but they, they, they might be going, oh, we should maybe go out to the market and test this and see see whether Techno's fees are still actually on yeah. point. And when you get to a certain point, then you could also have 
the, the risk or the worry is that a firm that doesn't understand the complexity of the work comes in and buys the job because they just want the they want the brand and the project on their books and they're willing to take a take a low fee and just get it you know get the experience or get the connection or get the marketing value whatever it happens to be yeah so there there is a tension that exists with that those there can be a tension with those longer term like not always but there can be with yeah growing the fees and staying staying uh staying in the right spot but you know you just have to have good relationships and i guess if you're communicating clearly and you can sell the value proposition that you're not gouging and you're not taking the piss. Um, mm. You know, these longer-term relationships, all the good ones are based on the fact that there's there's implicit trust. They like you as a person. They value your professional um, capacities and your te- your expertise, uh, but they also know that you're not like you're not gou- you're not taking advantage of the relationship. You're not you're not you're not getting greedy and you're not yeah, yeah just taking the piss. Yeah. And and these these good clients that we've got who are successful in business, like they're going to have a sixth sense for people taking the piss. So yeah, it's not going to take much for them to go. Oh, hang on a second, this this is this is going a bit weird now. Um, and yeah. then they'll they'll to- they might tolerate for a little bit, but they're like, oh, we might get through this job, and then let's let's start thinking about other options for the future for the net for the next one. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, it's just a relationship. It's just that. You know, working together and being having good communications always the key. The only thing that ever stuffs up anything in life that I've seen is communication going, um, going yeah. sideways, and yeah, then that's where absolutely. the pro- that's where the problems uh, happen. Yeah, so uh, it's like do, it's pretty basic. Yeah. Do you have like a big enough pool of clients, that, like these repeat business clients, that if the wrong email got sent or interpreted the wrong way or, or whatever, some communication breakdown happened. Mm. It's like half the company would collapse in the space of an afternoon. If this nah. one big client, no, nah, you're not, nah. there's not like that much risk there. There's not that much risk. And, um, and you've got enough, you've got enough skin in the game and not, and enough of a relationship. Like if you're on a hair trigger to that point that things were going to collapse over um, yeah. a, ba- a bad day <laughs> or a bad email or a bad community, like you, you probably bug it anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's that's not going to do it. And you'll always like because I said before, no one's perfect. We make mistakes. Things happen. That you got it. All anyone ever wants is some um, fear to be authentic, to be honest, to own your mistakes. And and in lots of cases, there's grey area. But you can appeal to clients and say, look, you made you've made some mistakes in this situation. I can yeah. I can cop I can cop half of it because I know. I know we made a contribution, so I'm going to do what I can do professionally to fix the issue, and you're going yeah. to accept it from your side, and we're just going to work it out. It's going to get fixed, and we're going to move forward. And it's uh, it's not great. I'm not I'm not loving the fact that we're in a pickle, and there's a bit of hurt here, but you know we're going to get through it. And yeah, people who've been in business for a long time and they're similarly honest and genuine, authentic mm. people, they're going to accept that. They're going to they're yeah, going to ride absolutely. through it, and you'll keep on going. So. There's sometimes a conversation that comes up about adding that layer of more senior people or people that are managing people beneath them. Yes. Sometimes this issue comes up of if you're taking the people that are the best at executing and implementing and doing the architecture work and then moving them into sort of more management positions where they may be doing a little bit less. Have you ever found that that, I know this is like every architect's studio just basically promotes the best people that have been around and puts them into those sort of roles. But yes. does it ever create any issues where you've got people that are really, really great at like doing the architecture, but then more and more of their job starts to become more just like sort of managing projects, managing people, a bit more administrative in a, in a sense, or do you still yeah. manage to keep those senior architects like pretty like deeply involved in projects? Yeah. So that issue of promotion and then taking people essentially off the tools and then putting them into management is a, is a juggle. Not everyone's actually management material. Uh, they're not actually geared to delegate and fulfill that role. There's a bit of an education process as well, and that's, I guess, why you have to take people on a pathway to leadership. Like some people are kind of naturally geared to be a boss, essentially, and they just they just yeah. have it in them, and they just I don't know they've just got the mentality or the mindset for that right from the get go. But other people need to learn it or experience it, and 
for sometimes I guess more junior people are worried about what people are going to think about them or they worry they, they overly worry about their just those relationships and it's like these are your colleagues you're being professional you're, and it's not about being a prick or being yeah you're not you're not trying to be awful about it it's just uh, you got to you just got to be professional so yeah so I guess with some people we we look at how we're going to progress them to be managerial. But then there is that other side of that question you talk about, like the business pressure where you're taking someone who was a good production person and then you're taking them off production and putting them into management. But you just have to find the way because you can't get to a certain size and not have good leadership because it's just yeah. going to be a total mess. <laughs> yeah, what did that mess look like? Or what was the sign that um, you needed to start changing that structure? It's kind of a scale thing, but it's also like at different times, you just have missteps with people that you thought were going to be good leaders, but they're just not. Yeah. And um, it's less when you're promoting from within. It's more when you promote, when you're at a certain size and you think, oh, we need to import expertise. We'll hire a, pro- we'll hire a good project architect kind yeah. of situation. Yeah. And you think you're going to get someone good and it's and you just haven't looked at it carefully enough and and they just don't turn out to be the candidate you thought they were. And so there's just a big setback with that because you've yeah. you, you paid money and, and, you, and you have that honeymoon period where you sort of just like, oh, I thought it was going to be a bit better than this, but it's only the first couple of months and, you know, we need to give them some time to settle in and understand the team and understand how we work. So you create these little... Uh, excuses in your head as to why it's maybe not and you're just willing it to uh, get better yeah. and it just it usually doesn't so shame <laughs> um, yeah and you then found it usually you found if it's gonna work it usually works right away and the right away really yeah. Uh, yeah, and great. that's what I've that's what I've sort of learned over the years is you know your intuition is usually right and you, you don't expect people to be like absolutely uh, guns blazing from day one but you should be feeling pretty good about it pretty quickly and if you're not feeling good about it you probably need to act on it and not not stuff around too much and yeah use your probation period for what it's what it's designed for it's a, yeah. to the benefit of the employee but or, or the team member and to the benefit of us um because things don't always work out um and that's yeah. before you're really locked in and you haven't got much it gets very difficult to move people along beyond um, probation that if it's not working, yeah. you're probably best to say, look, sorry, it's not, not feeling it. And it's not, it's not on a whim and you don't do it. You don't do it uh, without a lot of consideration, but you know, similarly, they, the, the team member can say, oh, look, I, I thought this job was, I thought this place was going to be right for me, but it just, it just isn't. So um, yeah. that rarely happens, but yeah. Yeah. Sometimes like, you know, I see studios getting to that stage where they're going to hire that sort of more experienced person where that, like, you know, I feel like the process usually begins with let's get graduates and let's get sort of young architects and start to like build the team a little bit. But then you go, okay, now it's time for that project architect that's been there and done it and they've got that experience. But I sometimes find the situation is, you know, we're not really, we're not necessarily sure what what, we're, what they're going to do or there might just be this sense of like we'll figure out the structure of their job like once they get here kind of yes. thing can, can sometimes <laughs> happen a little bit. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's tricky. And the, some of the things is you've got your ambition for your practice and you hire someone from a bigger firm or bigger experience and you're a little bit worried about the fact you don't quite have the jobs that they might ordinarily do, you know, yeah. of the scale and the prestige and all that kind of thing. So you're sort of coming at it from a bit of a backward position of, or on the back foot. And there's just that that other aspect of a lot of expectation and a lot of hope that they're going to be a part of the strategy to get to the next place that you want to be. And obviously you hire junior peoples in the in the beginning because it's what as a newish business or it's a it's what you can afford to do or and then after a while you, I guess you end up you have a team and we've experienced this. You've got a team where you you're only learning off yourself and your team and your team's all you've only learned from the jobs that you do. You've you're not bringing in any expertise from people having had experiences working in other practices on other jobs with different clients. And so you try, you start to question, it's like, oh, we, we need to, Im- it's going to take us too long to build up our internal experience. We need to import some. And then I guess if you make the right selections, you're going to, you're going to import some good expertise. And if the fit, the cultural fits right, and they're actually got the runs on the board and you've also got the right jobs to support what they're good at. 
I guess where sometimes it hasn't worked for us is where we've got the ambition for that um, project architect, but we actually don't quite have the right job for the jobs. Like the actual project works yeah. not quite in sync, and um, and that's I guess that's where it's fallen over at different times. So as the company gets bigger, do the missing bits become kind of like? smaller and clearer and more specific because i feel like when you're a real small practice like a couple of people you're missing you're missing literally almost everything <laughs> you know <Yeah>. like <laughs> you, you you've got very little you've got about 10 percent of the overall of you know you don't have the hr you don't have the promotion structure you don't have the performance review kind of things like those yeah. you could just look about you could you could turn your head anywhere and you'll find 15 things that you need to improve but yeah. I guess like as the studio gets bigger, do those problems tend to kind of crystallize a little bit more where you're like, okay, there's a few specific areas. We're mostly good, but like yeah. we want to improve in a couple of key things. I think it's like that. Other than when there's a bit of a surprise, someone someone leaves unexpectedly, whether it's they've been with us for a decade and it's sort of time for them to try something else. Nothing, nothing bad happened. It was just, a you know, they're, yeah. they're ready to try something else. Uh, I guess if someone has a baby or you know, then yeah. you so like they might be coming back or so then all of a sudden you've got a, ho- a hole in your team. But I guess when you've got a critical mass of team members, one person out of 30 shouldn't be totally... You can dis- absorb it a bit easier, yeah. Yeah, and the gaps are not always in the most... What you're trying to fill, the missing bits, it, like it varies and you're not always looking for the most senior architect or the most... or a, pro, or a leader in the business sometimes at a certain time. It's like, no, we've actually... We need a couple of juniors at the moment. We don't... We actually don't have any grads, or we're missing a student. We need someone for model making, or uh, we 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 lost a drafts person, so we need we need a Revit guy. Yeah, you know we've got a good sense of our organisation chart. We look at a balance, so we're not all top heavy. And you're looking at how you're structuring your teams, and at different times you just you need people in different spaces, whether it's mid tier or senior or junior. Yeah, and you obviously need to keep filtering in junior people to keep um, a part, you know, people to. Uh, rise through and you're managing costs and you man- yeah. and it's constantly being adjusted. Yeah. yeah, and just when like you think you've got the mix right, the whole market shift is always changing and shifting, right? So it's like you constantly. can't get, you, you think you've solved it, then you're like, oh, wait, no, something's not working. <laughs> something, yeah. Stuff that's out of our control is happening. No, it's really, yeah. it's really interesting. Do you, do you guys have any like external business coaching or have you guys, you know, got, do you, do you pay Deloitte a million dollars a year to tell you guys business stuff or, and help you with this stuff? Or is one of um, you doing like TAFE courses at night on, <laughs> on how to, how to yeah. like, you know, like trying to stay one lesson ahead of these things? Yeah. I guess it's just, I'm always interested in this idea of like how you, as a business is growing or a practice that's growing, like you're always faced with these new problems that maybe you haven't seen before. I guess you just have yeah. to you just have to sort of use your intuition and deal with them. But yeah. like, is there anything externally that you guys do that sort of helps with stuff? Yeah, different times we have. In the beginning, Justin and I leveraged quite a lot of off our respective parents. Justin's yeah. father was a consulting engineer and he created and developed quite a big engineering company in Sydney and Canberra. So he had experience in professional consultancy and uh, and he was an engineer, which was allied. So he he helped us in the beginning with his business advice because he'd, he'd been mm. through it himself. And my father as well, not in the architecture profession, he was in public relations, and but he had his own business as well. And so we took advice from him. He helped. I think in the end, we there would have been further training that either Just or I or Steve could have taken to, you know, do an MBA on the side or do some other specialist leadership training, uh, management training, but we, we haven't done that. Um, we're all on on the job. And over the years, I guess from time to time, we've had someone come in. We had a we had a business mentor at one stage who was from the branding space, a guy named mm. Trevor Flett, and he helped us out quite a bit. He helped us actually with developing our, our pillars, the pillars yeah, of our business. Yeah. So we developed those and his wife helped us as well. She's a, she was a trainer of CEOs. She's a psychologist by oh, cool. by her training, but she she was a trainer of, she was uh, yeah working either with people who were about to lose their job or working with people who were high performers and making them better CEOs and better leaders. And so we, we did a lot of work with her, Jan Kelly. She's, I think she's semi-retired now, but she, she helped us a lot too. We got a lot of help from her actually through COVID, but we'd been working with her prior prior to covid so yeah a bit of psychology sessions kicked in no, at different that's cool times. i mean that's the first time someone's brought that up on the podcast because i think that's just really interesting though like kind of executive coaching is that sort of where psychologists 
sort of embed with CEOs and work through that stuff. I think that's really interesting. It was that kind of engagement. And then it it also transitioned into, you hear um, companies talking about EAP, like employee assistance programs, which is coming into vote. It's probably existed for a long time, but having that psych um, access for team members, if they're struggling with work and life, they've got a chance to give someone a call. Yeah. Um, So Jan was providing that kind of service to us as well, especially in COVID. She was giving the leadership team coaching, but then at times our team through COVID was just struggling with being on their own and life was getting a bit tough. And so she was there to talk to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Interested, are there any, uh, I always feel like at the end, I'm always asking what are the plans for the future or or what's the the vision for the studio? Do you guys sell the business at some point or kind of like what's what's the vibes? Justin, Steve and I have still got a little way to go in our careers. It'd be nice to retire at 50, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and it's not necessarily an aspiration anyway, even if you could afford to do it. But we always thought that we were building a business that was bigger than ourselves. We na- we yeah. didn't name the business Travers Northrop or something similar. That'd be pretty um, cool though. Good names. Yeah, we, came, we decided to call ourselves Techne. And we've always had an idea about succession planning and that capacity. It's not very typical that architecture businesses are sold and traded. No. But I'm sure it happens. You get a bigger firm wants to get a get a presence more. in its city yeah. and yeah. we could we could maybe sell. But it's more likely that you sell from within, that you you build that structure within the business that the generations before you can potentially buy you out yeah. when you're ready to uh, to ease ease up on the work. Um, you might not sell all your shares. You might just sell some of them, but and consult. But that's a way off for us. So, you know, we've got lots of work ahead of us. So separate to that, we ended up with a studio in Albury. Well, in the last twelve months, prior, just prior to COVID, we picked up some project work um, in in the northeast of Victoria, which was totally unexpected. We weren't trying to get it. A publican recognized our work and wanted us to do a good project for him. And then that has naturally or coincidentally just expanded. And we're doing a lot of projects up that way in places like around Rutherglen, Albury, Beechworth, the high country, uh, heading up into New South Wales towards Goulburn. And uh, we ended up with a team member who used to work with Techne for a number of years. She left us, but then she relocated to Albury. She's from Albury. And then we realized she was there. We put out a call and said, oh, Dana, we're doing a lot of work in the region. We think there's a good opportunity to create a practice. Do you, and, and the important thing when you do do a branch studio, it's always a question of the lead. It's always an issue of the leadership. It's either mm-hmm. the directors in the home base doing a lot of travel or relocating themselves. And I wasn't especially motivated for that and nor were my <laughs> business partners. But Dana was there. She already knew us. She was a longstanding team member. She's like a local. She has good networks and the timing was perfect. She was just, she'd been working solo for a little while and she'd realized that she didn't want to be working solo forever. And then when we knocked on the door and said, do you want to join back in and be a studio leader and help us build this practice? She was, uh, she didn't really hesitate and it's been a really great move. And we've currently got three people in Albury. We've got a shop top office in the main street called Dean Street. Yeah, And we've got a whole bunch of clients. There's really good project work there. And I expect that we'll grow the team by two or three people in the next 12 months. That would that would pretty easily happen. Wow. And the other thing that happened for us is in COVID, one of our directors, Steve, ended up moving down to Jan Chuck. Uh, he's grew, grew up in Geelong and went to Deakin. And, um, and now that he's there, he's still coming back to Melbourne uh, each week, but now that he's based there, living there, we will develop a strategy for the Surf Coast and for Geelong. There's an awful lot of development that's happening down that way. It's a clearly recognised area of growth. We aren't necessarily setting up a studio there anytime soon because Melbourne's so close. Yeah, uh, but we'll definitely be doing more work there because it's a natural fit for us. So, like Melbourne's the home. We've got a great studio in Carlton, and we've got plenty of yeah. space to grow. Sick location. So yeah. good. And then we've got these brand, you know, we've got Albury, which is which is great. And um and Geelong sort of coming coming online as well. So I think that's quite quite a bit for us to to yeah. to deal with and that's quite exciting. And um yeah. yeah, I just think I don't know, we'll just continue to 
expand on our sectors of work and our hospitality is bound to continue to grow. I think I mentioned earlier, hotels is more than an aspiration, but it's a, it's a very good fit for us to be doing boutique hotels and you know various wellness projects and projects of complexity, projects of scale. We're well positioned for that. And we've got a track record. Like one of those things, say with the ESPY, a, a risk of, and this is where it sort of transitions into this idea of bigger jobs, even though that's a really big F&B job, it does like we put very fine grain thinking and time and energy into every part of that project that like nothing was phoned in nothing was treated like a commercial project it was like a very bespoke crafted project from top to bottom and and that's what we're really practiced at as a as a business and so even when we transition up to bigger scale projects where they're worth 20 million or 30 million we're still bringing that very fine grain human centered approach um so we, we, we just hope to do more of that, Yeah, which is a very creative space and, and continues to be a high quality output. Like it's, there's no sausage factory in that. There's no, yeah, there's no just smashing it out. It's just continuing to do nice work. So. Oh, love it. Let's finish yeah. on that. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it, Dave. It's been great to chat and I've been a good afternoon. Awesome. Thanks, mate. That was my conversation with Nick Travers from Techne. If you'd like to learn more about Techne, you can visit techne.com.au. You can also follow the studio on Instagram at Techne Architects. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.